0: Good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning, and I'm excited to take time to look at God's Word together. Well, as we all know, the more, most of us have probably had a job at one point or another, or else we're heading towards that. We know that in every line of work, somebody has to be in charge. And we have to hope that our boss, our supervisor, our overseer, whatever the position title is, that the person who's there knows what they are doing and that they treat us well when we're working for them. We have to hope that our boss is not incompetent, like, I don't know, Michael Scott from The Office or something like that, and hope our boss is not cruel. In in my mind went to uh, Meryl Streep's character Miranda from The Devil Wears Prada, a very cruel boss, mean to her employees. If our boss is incompetent or cruel, then we'll normally leave that place of work. We won't stick around very long. So we do that with our jobs, But we often don't do the same in our personal lives. We don't think about who is in control of our individual lives. We don't apply the same standard. Instead, we admire people from afar. We think, have it all together, or seem very strong powerful and know what they're doing. And then we're disappointed when those people we follow and support are often exposed as frauds. Or we rely on ourselves. We say, I'm my own boss. Nobody else is in control of me. I do what I want. But deep down, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we don't have it all together. We know that we're not perfect. We know that, more often than not, we actually don't know what we're doing with our life. And in a world that is full of problems and difficulties, we need someone who knows what they're doing to be in charge. And that's really one of the main reasons why we're even looking at the book of Hebrews to begin with. Especially today, we're getting into a very detailed, complicated passage, but the reason we're in this book is because My desire is that we turn our focus from the problems, the difficulties we see around us and turn our focus to the one who can actually do something about those problems. The one who can actually save us and make a difference in our lives. My goal is that we turn our focus from anyone else we could look at and instead look at the one who should be our boss, Jesus Christ. I was thinking about this uh, as I was reviewing my notes yesterday. There was a I don't know, I guess you call it a Christian kitsch, Christian little thing in in Christian circles that some people would put up bumper stickers. I had a poster or like a little hanging thing in my room when I was a teenager. My boss is a Jewish carpenter. And it's just a reference to that Christ should be the one that I'm following first and foremost. Today, we're going to look at that from the passage of Hebrews chapter seven. We're going to look at verses one through 22. And as we read it and look at it, it may seem like a very deep, very hard, very confusing passage. It may kind of seem irrelevant. What does any of this have to do with my life, Pastor? But if we take time to look at it and think of it in terms of who is our boss, who is the one that we are following, we'll find it's actually a profoundly encouraging passage that tells us about a better boss that we can follow. Our passage today, it's a very long passage compared to what we've been doing in the book of Hebrews, and it's kind of a detailed argument that the author's building a point throughout the passage, so instead of reading it all together at the beginning, we're just going to read it as we go along through the passage. So before we look at it, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word, which tells us about you and about your son, He's a better boss than, than we could hope to have in any any job, any line of work we could have here on earth. Lord, as we think about the fact that he is in control, may you remind us that he's a better king than we could hope for, a better priest representative for us. Lord, thank you that he brought the needed change in our lives so that we could know you. Thank you for his indestructible life that now gives us a guaranteed hope that we can trust in and through that hope we can draw near to you and know you. So God, as we read this passage today, may our focus be on him, on Jesus, so that he may get the glory, that he may increase in our thoughts and affections. It's in his name, the name of Jesus, that I pray, amen. Well, if you haven't been here, or just to remind the rest of us, we're in the book of Hebrews. This is a letter in the New Testament, but it more often reads like a a sermon that this unknown author, we don't know who's writing it, is writing to a group of people who were Jewish background believers. They were Hebrew people who decided to follow Jesus Christ. But the problem was they were really struggling with being Christians, followers of Jesus, and it seems some of them wanted to go back to being Jews, to just practicing that old way of life. They thought, this is too hard. I think I was more in control of my life before. I wanna go back to that but the author is trying to tell them, no guys, Jesus is better, you should stick with him. We just finished a section where he was giving a warning about falling away from Jesus and encouraging them to grow spiritually by trusting in God's promises for their lives. And now we hit chapter seven and it's kind of like this author has a mini sermon. The whole book is like a sermon, but here he's preaching a mini sermon about one passage from the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible. And this is the passage he has in mind. It's from Psalm 110. King David writes and says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. And he speaks to the Messiah, the Savior, and says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So hundreds of years before the book of Hebrews was written, King David wrote this Psalm and he said, the Messiah, our Savior, will be part of a priestly order like Somebody named Melchizedek. And we may think, who in the world is that? Well, he's a very, very obscure Old Testament character. And on the surface, that seems like a really strange thing to talk about. David just picked the most random person he could pick from the Bible and said, yeah, this guy, that's who the Messiah is going to be like. But how the Old Testament and our passage approaches this random guy actually tells us a lot about how we should think about our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And so this Old Testament hope that we see in this psalm of a better priest to come gives us a New Testament hope and reality in Jesus Christ, someone we can follow, someone we can trust in. So we're going to read through this passage, and we're going to look at each point that the author makes, and we're going to see how it builds to a wonderful conclusion. So if you, look, if you have the outline, it's like each point, and then we add something else to it, before we get to the conclusion, the point that the author wants us to take home? Well, he starts by telling us that Jesus, the Messiah, is a better king. He is a better king. And we see this if we look at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. He brought up this character, Melchizedek, and this is what he says. This Melchizedek, who was king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, he met Abraham returning from a battle from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned, he gave a 10th part of everything. This King Melchizedek, he is first by translation of his name. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem and that is king of peace. Okay. So who is this guy? This random guy, Melchizedek? Well, He was a priest of God, but he was ruling as a king or chief over the city of Salem. This is thousands of years, even before the the author of Hebrews was writing. And that city, Salem, most likely became what we know today as Jerusalem. And this king, Melchizedek, he meets the ancestor of the Hebrew people, Abraham. So the patriarch, the one from all the Hebrew, all the Jewish people came from, this king meets him. We find this in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. In this story, Abraham is getting to know God. God's leading him to a promised land. He moves apart from his nephew, a man named Lot, but then he hears that his nephew has been taken captive by enemy armies. And so Abraham goes to the rescue and despite overwhelming odds, he's able to beat those people who took his nephew captive and free him along with many others that were taken captive by this army. And he brings them back home. And on the way home, he is met by other rulers of the area, other kings. They're so grateful. They say, Abraham, thank you so much for freeing our people. And then there's another king that comes as well. And that is this man, Melchizedek. And so we're going to read the only verses in the story that are about him. This is Genesis 14, 18 through 20, which says, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And Melchizedek blessed him, blessed Abraham, and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And that's it. That is all that the book of Genesis says about this random guy Melchizedek, he's a king, he came to bless Abraham after his victory. But in the book of Hebrews here, our author sees something else is going on here, something greater. He looks at the guy's name, Melchizedek, his name translated means king of righteousness. And so that could just mean he's a righteous and good king, but it perhaps draws his mind to Jesus, the one who brings righteousness and goodness to us by ourselves, we're sinners, we're pushed away from God, but Jesus is the one who makes us righteous before God. Because of Christ, and if we believe in him, then when God looks at us, he sees perfect righteousness and goodness, and he does not see us for the broken sinners that we really are. He also points out that he's king of Salem, and and Salem translated means peace. His kingdom is a kingdom of peace. And so this man, this Melchizedek, is interesting because he's both a king and he is a priest. In the Hebrew people history, their rulers were separated. There were kings, there were priests, and never the two should meet. But this guy is both. And he thinks, well, you know, that's the same role Jesus has now. He's a king and he's a priest. And as a king, he brings us peace. Perhaps he has in his mind other predictions about Jesus the Messiah. In the book of Isaiah, this is a scripture we often read around Christmas time. Isaiah predicted that to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This king brings actual lasting peace, true peace and stability that we cannot find apart from him. Your favorite politician, your favorite political party, even the, a country that you love cannot provide you with lasting peace here on earth. The only way we experience God's peace is through Jesus, our King. If he is our King, if He is our Lord, the master of our desires, if we think, you know, I want this thing, but I know that Jesus is greater, then we can experience God's true peace. There's many things we could chase after in this life. We could chase after money. We could chase after pleasure. We could chase after things that that bring us joy, buying something here, buying something there. Or we could decide to follow particular people. I'm gonna follow this person or this group or this thing and then maybe I'll find peace and joy in my life. We could do that, but there's only one king who provides lasting peace. And our author today is saying, is that king your king. But he's not done, because like Melchizedek, Jesus is also a better priest. Jesus is not only a king, but like this Old Testament figure, he's also a priest. This is a longer section, but let's read verses 3 through 10 here. Uh, This is back in Hebrews 7. Verse 3 says, he, this is talking about Melchizedek, he's without father or mother or genealogy. In the Bible, we have neither the beginning of his days nor the end of his life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues to be a priest forever. So see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. Verse 5 tells us those descendants of Levi, those who had the priestly office, they have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, from their brothers though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, this man who does not have his descent from them, he receives a tithe from Abraham. And he blessed Abraham, the one who had the promises. Verse 7 makes the point that it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, the tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other by one who scripture tells us that he lives. Verse 9 says, one might even say that Levi himself, the one who's supposed to get the tithes, that he paid them through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So he's building an argument here. And he first is telling us in verse 3 that Melchizedek is not Jesus, but he resembled him because he's without father mother genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life but resembling the son of god he continues as a priest forever remember that the only time he's talked about are those three short verses i read a few minutes ago and those verses don't tell us who this guy's father was they don't tell us who his mother was we're not given a family history we're not told when he was born and we're not told when he died like we are for many old testament people and so we don't know when he stopped being a king and a priest. And so the author is saying, since it doesn't tell us, we could say, he's not saying in reality, but he's saying we could say that him serving as a priest continued forever. As far as we know, he remained a priest of God. And that's what this passage said. It says you are a priest forever, not ending when you die, but forever. So in the same way, Jesus is our eternal priest. Well, one pastor explains it this way. So he's making an allegory, a point. He's saying, what was kind of allegorically true of this guy Melchizedek? We don't know when he was born and when he died. Well, that's literally true about Jesus because Jesus has existed forever. He had neither beginning of days nor end of life. And you may be saying, well, pastor, why are you getting lost in all this? Because that's who Jesus is. He lives forever. And that means he is always there for us. He is our priest, and you may get hung up by that word, but all that means is that he represents us before God. He's the one who stands in between us and says, God, I'm guarding after these people, looking after them. He is the one who's between us and a perfect holy God. He is our go-between. Next week, we'll look at this verse, and we read it uh, a few moments ago. It says, consequently, because of all this, Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him. How can Jesus save us? Because he always lives to make intercession for them. He's between us and God. He stands in the gap between us. He represents us. The point our author is making is that this random guy in the Old Testament, Melchizedek, he was a type, he was foreshadowing, looking ahead to Christ. We see this a lot in the Old Testament. There's somebody who they're doing something great and then perhaps later they'll say that person doing that was kind of like how our Messiah will be. You could think about King David. Scripture says he's a man after God's own heart. And wasn't that Jesus living after God? Again, it's foreshadowing things to come. Another quote from that pastor F.B. Meyer. I, I really like how he's looking at it. He says, it's as if the Father, if God, could not await the day of his son's entrance. He couldn't wait for Jesus. And so he anticipates, he looks ahead to what Jesus is going to do, the marvels of his ministry by embodying its leading features in miniature. In other words, he's saying that he put like people who were kind of like Jesus, not perfect, but who reflected Jesus a little bit. They're sprinkled throughout the Old Testament until when we get to Jesus. We're like, wow, this is the person we were waiting for. So when we're reading the Bible, we should read something like the story of David and we think, wow, man, David was a great king. I I wish we had a king like that who was in charge. Oh, wow, and we go back to reading. Maybe we read about Moses and we think, oh, wow, Moses, he was a great leader. I wish we had a spiritual leader like Moses. Oh, wow. Or perhaps we come across this random guy, Melchizedek. He's like, huh, this guy's both a priest and a king. Oh, wouldn't it be great if we had somebody who was both of those things for us, someone who was in charge and someone who stood between us and God, oh, that would be great. And his point is that that's God's intention through scripture is to build those things, to whet our appetite, give us appetizers before the main course of Jesus arriving. That's what he wants the readers to do here, our author. He wants them to see, think about what this means for us. See how great this man was to whom Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils. Abraham was a great man. He was the patriarch, the father of the people of Israel. He's given this great title of respect, a patriarch, the head of the family. Yet, Abraham gave a tithe or 10% of what he won in battle to this man, this seemingly strange random person who pops up named Melchizedek. He somehow believed that this man represented God, that this man should receive what God had given him in battle. Why does this matter, Pastor John? Well, if we look at the next couple of verses, verses five and six, they tell us that in the Old Testament law, this wasn't how it was supposed to work. In the Old Testament law, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, were supposed to give a tithe 10% to one of the 12 tribes to people in this one group, this 112th part of their nation known as the Levites. As it says in verses five and six, it was the descendants of Levites. They are the ones who received the priestly office. They're the ones who have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, from their brothers, even though they're all descended from Abraham. But this man, this Melchizedek, he does not have his descent from them, but he received tithes from Abraham. He blessed the one who had God's promises. So instead of giving it to who it was supposed to be, it goes to this man, which is so strange. The law explicitly told the people that the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present to the Lord, they're to give to the Levites as an inheritance. Instead of receiving land, the Levites received the tithe from the people. They were part of God's family, but they received the special gift. But Abraham, who was supposed to be the big head, instead he gives a gift to this other guy. And this other guy, Melchizedek, blesses him. This would probably have caused those readers to scratch their heads. They would have said, wait a minute. God gave promises to Abraham. He told Abraham that he would have descendants. He told Abraham that he would bless him. Why is this other guy blessing him instead? Well, the author addresses this in our text, verse 7. He says, it's beyond dispute. The inferior is blessed by the superior. Logically, one who is superior gives a blessing to someone below them. It's beyond dispute, without a doubt. Maybe it helps to read it in another translation. The New Living Translation puts it this way. Without question, the person who has power to give a blessing is greater than the one who is blessed. Maybe let me... Illustrate this a way to kind of help us wrap our heads around this. Uh, Someone like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos is not going to call you up and ask you to give him a loan. That's probably not going to happen. Because they don't need a loan from you. They have far more money than than we'll ever have. They don't need a loan from us. Well, in the same way, God doesn't need us to bless him. We need him to bless us. And so the author's saying just as if you wouldn't take a, be asked to give a loan to an extremely wealthy person. In the same way, it's somebody who's greater who gives a blessing. So if this guy, Melchizedek, is blessing Abraham, it must mean that he's greater than him somehow. Even though Abraham just won a battle, he's saying, you are a greater king than I am. The author points out more about what the difference is here in verse eight. He's reminding us that the priest in the Old Testament, they were mortal men who died. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other, this man, Melchizedek, were never told that he died. It's testified that he lives. Just as it was said in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be like this Melchizedek. He would not die. He would live forever. And scripture says that Jesus is alive even now. In the very last book of the Bible, somebody's talking to Jesus, the Apostle John. And when he sees him, he falls at his feet as though dead. He lays his right hand on me and said, Fear not, I am the first, the last, the living one. I died, behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. The author's making a simple point. He's saying Jesus must be greater than the priest we knew when we were practicing Hebrews and Jews. They died, but he lives Verses 9 and 10 says Abraham is the grandfather, actually, of the guy who started the priest, Levi. And so one could say that Levi was giving an offering to this guy as well. As it says in 9 and 10, one might even say Levi himself, who received the tithes, paid them through Abraham. And he's just kind of making the point that if Levi was a descendant of this guy, then at the very least his DNA or his genetic material was making this offering as well. Now, Our author is is making a very tricky point here. He knows this isn't literally true, but it's helping support what he's trying to drive at. What is he saying? He's saying, you guys love Abraham. You think Abraham's great. He was a great patriarch, a great leader. He's somebody that we should value and honor. You guys like the priest of the tribe of Levi. You want to go back to following them by practicing Judaism. They're great. God brought them into existence. He gave them the orders about what they were supposed to do. But Jesus is like this King Melchizedek. He's similar to him in that he's greater than both Abraham and Levi, and he is a better priest. Now, you may say, "Uh, but pastor, what what does any of this have to do with me today? You do this long thing, this this guy, and he's better. What does any of this have to matter in my life? Well, think about what a, a priest did. A priest was somebody who helped people get closer to the gods they were worshiping. God-honoring priests were ones who helped people get closer to God, who brought them into a right relationship with God. There are many people that we might try to rely on to help us grow closer to God. There's nothing wrong with listening to different preachers or teachers of the Bible, oh, this person really helps me understand God better. Nothing wrong with that at all. But we need to be clear that there's only one person we need to get us to God. There's only one person we need to bring us into a right relationship with him, and that is Jesus. He's the only one we need to bring us to God. You don't need a pastor, you don't need a priest, you don't need a spiritual guru, and you can't do it alone. Jesus is the one we need to bring us to our Lord. And so anybody who you listen to who says they're teaching from the Bible, they're only helpful in so far as they point your attention to Jesus Christ. This is a big book with a lot of stuff in it. And you can find lots of people who will use this book to say a whole bunch of things. They'll use this book to talk about money and what you should do with your money. They'll use this book to talk about politics, who you should vote for. They may even use this book to tell you what type of diet you should have. But if they don't emphasize Jesus, if they don't emphasize that he is the one you need, He is your priest. He is the one who can bring you to God. Not what you're doing, but what he has done for you. If they don't emphasize that, then that's not someone we should listen to or follow. To use the point our author is making here, do you want to put your trust in someone who may fail, in someone who may be disgraced, in someone who at the very best will die someday? Do you want to put your trust in that person to bring you to God? Or... Do you want to put your trust in Jesus, the one who lives forever? We should consider or think deeply about him. He lived and he died so we could be restored to God. In fact, that's what our author addresses next. He's not only better king and better priest, but he's brought a needed change. A needed change. This is what we see in verses 11 through 14. Let me read those. The author says, if perfection, if we had been made perfect, if that had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, where under it people received the Old Testament law, then what further need would there have been for another priest to arise? Someone like this guy Melchizedek, rather than one named after Aaron, the very first priest. For when there is a change of priesthood, well, there's necessarily a change in the law we're following as well. Verse 13 says, The one whom these things are spoken, he belonged to another tribe from which no one ever served at the altar. It is evident our Lord, Jesus, he was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priest. His point here is that the Old Testament system of priest and sacrifices, it's imperfect. It could not make us right before God. God had a plan First people, his desire for those who know him is that we would be set apart, holy, different, that our lives would be changed in such a way that we would point people to God in his great glory. But we, we didn't live up to it. We couldn't live up to it. That promise, that goal was not fulfilled by the law and the priest that we read about in the Old Testament. There was a repeated command there. In the the law, it said things like this. I am the Lord. I brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. But God's people weren't holy. They chased after the things they wanted. They didn't pursue God. And since that system was insufficient, well, something had to change. Something needed to be different. And our author's point is this is what the Old Testament is hinting about when it talks about people like this Melchizedek, like another king, like another priest. When it says this guy Melchizedek is greater than Abraham's priest, that means we should be expecting something to change. Remember, this is all coming from Psalm 110, 110, which talks about a new priestly order of Melchizedek. And that passage by David was written hundreds of years ago after the Old Testament law. Our author is saying that this this idea that there's going to be another priest who's like Melchizedek, this proves to us that the priest that we had when we were just Hebrews, when we were just practicing Judaism, weren't good enough. Levi, Aaron, their descendants were not perfect priests, and we need someone perfect. The change we needed is a new priest. We need a new savior. We need somebody perfect to stand between us and god we need a new fulfilled way to relate to god he's driving at the point that jesus brings an end to our need for these old priests the priesthood has now been transferred from them to him and and for us who aren't under a system of priest and sacrifices we may miss how huge a deal this would have been jesus is saying the whole way of life you had before where you would go you bring your offering that you as a community would gather together for that the author is saying you don't need that anymore because of Jesus Christ. This would have been shocking for other Jews and Hebrews to hear. This is part of the people's problem is they had probably been kicked out of their families because they wanted to follow Jesus. And he's saying yes, but Jesus is worth it because you don't need that old way of life. He's not telling them to throw out the first half of the Bible. Uh, the o- Old Testament law is helpful for us. It tells us eternal principles about who God is. But we should expect to see changes in how we apply it because of the work of Jesus Christ. So friends, you don't need to go and offer animal sacrifices. You don't need to celebrate particular feasts on a particular day. You don't need to go and wear clothing made of only one type of material. These are the kind of things the law talked about, but it was driving us to see our need. Of Jesus Christ this was predicted in places like the Isaiah Psalms elsewhere in the Old Testament our Savior would come not from the line of priests but from the line of Kings again though this is a problem with the Old Testament law because it says it's supposed to be the Levites who are preached but Jesus is from a different family he is from the line of Kings and since he's like that guy Melchizedek he can be both a priest and a king And so for years, God's people had two imperfect leaders. They had a king who was sometimes good, sometimes bad. They had priests who sometimes did the right thing, sometimes did the wrong thing. And instead of two, now we have one, a perfect, better boss, an eternal priest and king. He's our priest. He's the one who can save us. He can make us right with God. When we feel far from him, he can take us and bring us close to him. When we feel lost in sin or despair and doubt, he could say, no, I can take you into God's presence. You can go before him. But he's also our king. When we feel in need, when we feel broken, we need someone to care for us, to love us, to provide for us. Well, Jesus can do that as well. That's why we should worship. That's why we should honor him. Now, maybe you're thinking, Pastor, this is a kind of really weird passage of scripture. Why are we spending so much time here? In this part, it's because we have to remember what was going on with those who were reading this letter. They wanted to go back to their old way of life. They said, too much has changed. I want to go back to what I know, what I knew before. I don't like where God's bringing me now. And we often do the same. We don't like the change that that Jesus brings in our life. We don't like when he changes things from how we used to to know them, and we want to reject that, turn away from that. Because instead, Jesus calls us to something different. He says, if you know me, you're going to live differently. You're going to act differently. You're going to think differently. You're going to make decisions in a different way. I may ask you to give up something that you like now for something even better. We want to reject that change, but he wants to change us so that God would be glorified and he has our best interest at heart. He brings a needed change into our lives. And he can do that because our author then tells us he has an indestructible life. That, that's a great word, an indestructible life. This is what verses 15 through 17 cover and that's your next blank, an indestructible life. Let's read verses 15 through 17. It says this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Somebody like him someone who's become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning who he was descended from, but by the power of an indestructible life. Because, as it's said in that passage from the Psalms, as it's witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is not a priest based on who his father was. He's a priest, our Represented the one who stands between God and us because of his indestructible and endless life Because he rose from the grave and death could not conquer him So he cannot be destroyed. He serves as our priest our representative forever Again, it's right here in the passage. It's the very last part of verse 17 is from that psalm He's preaching that psalm and saying look at what it says. It says you are a priest forever He lives Forever. And his resurrection makes it so evident that something has changed from the Old Testament law. Every other priest dies, but he does not. He's truly 100% fully perfect. That should give us hope and confidence in him. He won't abandon his post, he won't turn away from us. He gives us resurrection life. We can read another author, Peter, he talks about this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because Christ has been raised, we can have hope for the future. And that's our author's conclusion. If we look at all these things together, what is the point he wants us to take home? It's that if there's a better king, if there's a better priest who makes a needed change and who has an indestructible life, that means we have a guaranteed hope for the future. Something we can hold on to no matter what. And it means that whenever we have trouble, we can draw near to God. A guaranteed hope so that we can draw near. Let me read verses 18 through 22. It says, on the one hand, a former commandment, the old Law is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. The law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And this didn't come to us without an oath, a promise of God. Those who became priests formally, they were not made such with an oath, a promise of God. But this one was made a priest. He was made a priest by God's oath. God said to him, again quoting from Psalm 110, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And this means Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant, a better relationship with God. The commands, the regulations of that old Levite priesthood, that's set aside, it's annulled. It could not accomplish God's purpose to save his people. On its own, it's weak, useless, it's unprofitable. It can't save us. It can't remove our sin. It cannot guarantee our salvation. You could do every single command there, or at least try to, and it wouldn't guarantee your salvation because you would have messed up at one point or another. It's only a shadow of the reality that's now ours in Jesus Christ. Only He sets us free. The Apostle Paul would put it this way. He said, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. God has done what that Old Testament law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He's now condemned sin. He has now saved us. Our author is saying, don't go back to that. There's no hope in that. It's familiar, it's what you're used to, it was your old way of life, but there's no hope for you there anymore. Paul would make the same argument in another book. In the book of Galatians, he's writing to people who are having the same issue that these Hebrews are having. They want to go back. He says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless? He calls them elementary principles of the world, the basic things from your old life whose slaves you want to be once more. Why do you want to go back to that? Because now we have a better hope, a hope that lets us draw near to God. The perfection in our life is achieved that we want, it's achieved by him for us. If you were here last week, we talked about this idea of a curtain that separated us from God. Well, he's talking about it again here, saying Jesus brings us through that curtain so we can know God and enter his presence. He drinks, brings us in, he introduces this hope to us. The only way we know it is through him. That means we can approach God with confidence and not with wishful thinking. We don't have to think, oh, I wish God would hear me today. I wish God was listening. I wish God was, could care about me and what I'm going through right now. We don't have to think that at all. We can with confidence say, I know God hears me. I know that he cares. We talked about this verse a few weeks ago. Let us then with confidence draw near to God's throne of grace because then we can receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, we can confidently come before God. That is a right that will not be taken away from us. That Old Testament priesthood, it was not promised to last forever, but Jesus, he's standing for us. That is promised to last forever. Again, that verses 20 and 22 says that the old way was not, that this new way is not without an oath. Those who became priests, God didn't swear a promise about them, but this one was made a priest with an oath. God said to him, the Lord has sworn will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And that makes Jesus a guarantor of a better covenant. We we used that idea of guaranteed last week. God has given us a guaranteed promise to trust in Jesus. He's been set apart. He is now our representative. We can rely on him. He has authority that's based on the fact that God does not go back on his promises. God swore Jesus will be an eternal priest and God will not change his mind. Our faith is secure in him forever. There's not something better that's gonna come along. We don't have to wait and see, is God gonna change his mind again? Is he gonna do something different again? No, there are no more updates to come in the faith of Jesus Christ. This is the definitive version of salvation. There's other faiths that say that uh, Christian faith isn't good enough, you need to add something to it. That's what uh, Islam says, that's what Mormonism says. God said some more things, you need to know what he said. No. Our author saying God has now fully revealed himself forever. He has fully revealed his plan through the person and work of Jesus Christ. As Charles Spurgeon said, the gospel is God's ultimatum. He will go no farther. We have a proclamation of mercy to men, the last savior, the last foundation for hopes to be built upon, the last foundation in which sin the last fountain in which sin can be washed away, the last door of hope by which men shall escape from the guilt and punishment of sin. This is the last way, this is the only way. And so faith in him is a better way to relate in God. It's a better covenant, a better agreement with God. It's not that the first part of the Bible is bad or wrong or defective, it's just, it's temporary. The the laws, particularly some of them and how they're applied. The Hebrew people failed to live them out and they were meant to point us toward Jesus. We'll talk about in a few weeks that Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as this now this agreement with God that he mediates for us is now better. It's enacted on better promises. God has promised. Jesus has paid the down payment. We'll unpack more about that in a little bit, but let's, let's wrap our heads around. What is, what is the point here? Jesus has provided something better for us, something lasting, something we cannot find anywhere else. The Apostle Paul speaks about this in the book of Acts, and he says, Let it be known to you, therefore, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. The only way you find forgiveness and being right with God is through what Jesus Christ has done. By him, everyone who believes is freed from everything that you could not be freed by, by the law of Moses. Faith in Christ is not about a checklist, about things we do. There's not a, well, I need to do this, this, and this to make my life right before God. No, it's about Jesus has done something. He has done something that if we believe and trust in. If we turn away from our old sin, we believe in what he has done, then we can be restored to God. We can draw near to God through him. So let me ask, have you done that? Have you drawn near to God through Jesus Christ? He is all that you need. I would urge you to come to know him if you don't. Come to know him because he is the only one who can save. He can help us live in a place of true freedom, not in slavery to rules or other people's expectations, but true freedom of I know God. He knows me because of Jesus Christ. You can talk to me about that, you you can call out to God yourself, you can just call out to him or talk to someone about, "I, I don't quite understand, how can I know him? It is important to know and have a relationship with him. And if we do know him, then we have this wonderful news to celebrate. We shouldn't let our life be based on following somebody else or or some other person be in charge, but instead say, no, Jesus, you are in charge. You are the one I will rely on. Thank you for what you have done for me. Thank you for your work on my behalf. And one way we thank him is by responding in praise and worship. So let's do that now because he is worthy.